The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now and open to Revelation chapter 22. This morning, uh, this is the second to last message on heaven uh, in our series about heaven. Today, I want to concentrate on the word life. I, I don't want to, I'm not going to preach a Memorial Day sermon. And um, I, I realize those things are important, and we really ought to honor those who, who died for our country. And they have given us, in, in a great measure, a quality of life, haven't they? Uh, they provided for us the freedom that we can come to, we can live in this country and worship God, and we thank the Lord for that. I was just thinking as, a, as the choir was singing how we've got a couple of there, a couple of folks, or three folks in the, in the uh, choir that are not Native Americans, and I don't mean Indians, but I mean they weren't born in America, the, the uh, Rico's back here, and then uh, Brother Jorge from El Salvador, uh, and this is their country. And I love, to, I love to hear them sing about it, as well as all the rest of you. We just have a wonderful place to live. But I'm not going to talk about that kind of life today, that kind of quality of life. Instead, I want to uh, talk to you about the life that we have in heaven, that heaven, the new Jerusalem, this is characterized as a city of life because it comes from the life-giving source of the entire universe. Now, naturally, all of us are concerned about life. None of us would be here if we didn't have life. And we're not only concerned with the fact that we are living, but the fact that we want to continue living. We want to go on living. And I don't think there would be anybody here that says, well, I'm well ready to give up life. I don't want to exist any longer. A few weeks ago, I was sitting with a lady whose husband had recently died. And for many years, he had been bedridden with various illnesses, all kinds of physical problems. And she said, I'm so happy to know that he is in heaven. And then she began to talk about his quality of life here. And she said, he had no quality of life. Now, what we want is more than just to live. We want to have good quality of life while we do live. This is why books like Your Best Life Now become very popular. It's why motivational speakers are popular. And they tell you, this is what you need to do to make your life better and you listen to them, they make all kinds of money uh, selling their books. And then you have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today that uh, the preachers have struck a gold mine, it seems, because people latch on to these things. They want a better life. They want to be prosperous. They, they, they want to have everything that they can possibly gather to themselves. And you wonder sometimes, how do Christians actually get caught up into all of that when the Bible has so much to say about the deceitfulness of riches and the temptations that go along with riches. God would much rather that you live day by day depending on Him for every bite that you eat than to put all of your hope, all of your joy in your bank account or in your job. God wants you to depend on Him to have a good quality of life. Well, I could give you a list of verses that oppose the prosperity gospel. There are many of them in the scriptures. But rather than do that, I want to talk to you about the remedy for poor quality of life. That you can't actually have a better life now, 
not because of the things that you add to yourself, not because of that bank account and all the good things that you think the world has to offer, but because of Jesus Christ. We have a great quality of life, an unmatched quality of life right now because of life in Jesus. So I want to talk to you about the highest quality of life, the very highest that's possible. It is right now because of belief in Jesus, and then it continues on into eternity when we shall see God. Now let's notice these verses at the beginning of Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. God is the creator of all things that live. He was the creator of everything. He gives everything life and breath. He inspires life. He breathes breath into every living creature. And it's God who is the one that keeps things alive. The scriptures describe God as the author of life. Never says anything about God being the author of death. Because God is not the author of death. Death happened because of what man did, not because of what God did. God did not create life just to take it away from us. But he intended we would have an abundant life, and he has a purpose for us, a purpose that was determined in eternity past, and a perfectly good purpose that he intends to fulfill for his people. It was man's action that brought death, but there isn't anything that man can do to get rid of death. There's nothing that man can do to end death. The dead are dead, and they can't do anything at all. And so that means in order for life to be restored, God has to act again. God has to do something again. God has to initiate because man is totally incapable of producing life. Nothing lives without God's power. And so if man dies, there is only one who can bring him back to life, and that is God himself. Now that's actually a very important theological point because not only does the Bible teach that we physically died because of Adam's sin, but it also says that we live in spiritual death. And this is the very reason that it's, it's necessary for regeneration to re precede uh, repentance and faith, and that's because man is spiritually dead. He has no capabilities at all in the spiritual world. Man cannot act to come to God. God has to act first. Now, in the opening verses of John chapter 1, there it tells us that Jesus is life. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and this life was the light of men. In Acts 17, Paul said, For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul went on to say that God doesn't need anything because he's the one who is the giver of life and breath and all things for his people. Now, interestingly, that's a statement that preceded his teaching about the resurrection. And he taught about Christ's resurrection in order to show that Christ is actually the one that has the power over life. 
Now, life in John chapter 1, verse number 4, and also in Revelation 22, verse 1, comes from the same Greek word. That word is zoe. And it's a word that actually means all kinds of life. But in those two places that we've just read, it's meant to be descriptive of Jesus himself. That Jesus is the one who is life. So when we read those two scriptures, they're intended to be an allusion to Jesus. It speaks of him who is life. And then the word is also used in an eternal sense. In John 1.4 and also in Revelation 22, it doesn't mean a life that's passing. That Jesus gives us a life that's for the here and now, but then it's going to pass away. No, inherent in the word itself and the way that it's used is that this is an everlasting life. It is eternal life. This is a life that never fades away. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only one who is capable of giving that kind of life. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. In the 58th verse, this is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And then, of course, we're well acquainted of what Jesus said in John 4.14 in his conversation with the woman at the well. And he said, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, these verses tell us that in order for us to have life, we must come in contact with Jesus. In order to live eternally, we have to have more than just a natural life. We have to have more than just the physical life that we're born with. But rather, we must have a supernatural contact with Jesus. And this is what happens to us when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's when dead sinners are brought to life. We're given repentance and faith as a gift to be exercised to the saving of the soul. Now, since Jesus is life... Wherever Jesus is, we would expect that we would find life. And not just life, but an abundance of life. We would find things are growing and living. They're doing exceedingly well, living life to the fullest. And so the quality of life is the highest whenever Jesus is present. We see examples of that in his earthly ministry. When he came here, what did he do? He raised dead people. He brought dead people back to life. He helped people healed them of physical diseases that were, were, couldn't be touched by the doctors of that time or doctors by any time. He had the ability to do these kinds of things. And all of that's just a precursor of the life that he gives and is a picture of the kingdom that he's going to bring to this earth where everything is full of life. Now, here in Revelation 22, we understand that life from heaven comes from Jesus. And what we see here in these opening verses is a demonstration of that life that is the fullest that it can be. There's a quality of life in heaven that is outstanding. I don't think that you need me to tell you that, really. You expect that this is what heaven would be. There's an outstanding quality of life there. Now, in the beginning, then, of this 22nd chapter, that is what captured John's attention. Just the abundance of life that he was able to see in heaven, the abundant growth that's there. Anything that hinders life was noticeably absent. And so the chapter then begins with a vision of a river. 
A river that is described as the water of life. Verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Water is a symbol of salvation in Christ. Jesus said that he gives living water. Whoever drinks of the water is never going to thirst again. So he is the fountain of that living water. And, and the water proceeds from the throne in heaven and it flows throughout the city. And the water as it flows and the growth that comes from it is a constant reminder of the very thing that Paul said. In him we live and move and have our being. The river runs through the streets, whether that is or aside the streets, whether that's H2O, I don't know. I knew, though, that we don't need molecules of oxygen and hydrogen to survive because our bodies are not like the bodies that we have now. This body was made out of earthen elements by things that God made, by the elements that you would find on a periodic table. But I know that heaven is not like that. I know the body that's raised in the, with the spirit that joins the spirit in heaven is not that same kind of a body. The body that's raised is one that's made in the likeness of Christ. I don't know if there's chemical water in heaven, but I do know that it's not necessary for any processes of physiological life. And I know that every person that's in heaven is because Christ is this water of life, and we are there because we have the washing of regeneration through the belief of the Word of God. And then in the second verse, we see another indication of life. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river... Was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so in heaven, John also saw this. He saw the tree of life. And that tree reminds us of the one that was in the garden of Eden. And I think the connection to it is unmistakable. All trees that we know today were first in the Garden of Eden. But as I told you last week, there are only two trees that God created that were, that were of special significance to the story that we read in Genesis. Both of those trees are now extinct on the earth. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yes, I definitely believe that it was a literal tree. I believe that there was literal fruit on that tree. And Adam ate of it. But it was the only tree that was in the garden that God said, you shall not eat of this tree. The other tree that was there that is significant is the tree of life. And Adam could eat of that tree, although there's no evidence that he did. And I'll explain to you why he didn't here as we look at this. Sometimes we fail to see the goodness of God in this Genesis story and how that God very carefully planned. Adam could not eat of the tree of life first and then eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when he disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil first, then God would not let him eat of the tree of life. The scriptures are clear on this, that if Adam was to eat of that tree, that he would live forever, and he would live in a sinful state forever on this sin-cursed earth. And so before he could eat of that tree, God... Uh, and take a, 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 he took the bite of the forbidden fruit, and, and, and God said, well, you can't eat of the tree of life. And so he cast Adam out, and then he put cherubim with flaming swords around the garden, around that tree, so that Adam could not enter and eat again. And what God was doing, he was preventing Adam from doing irreparable harm to himself. 
That's the goodness of God. That's the grace of God, actually, in prohibiting Adam from eating of this tree that's called the tree of life. Now, we can't imagine what that tree must have tasted like. It must have had delicious fruit. I believe that it did, but nobody ever ate of it. Adam never left a record of what it tasted like because he didn't eat of it, and so we don't know what it tastes like. Now, that first tree served its purpose. It's now gone away. You're never, ever going to see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil again. It served its purpose. You know good and evil now. So you don't need that tree. God has no need for it anymore. But that second tree is much different. The second tree has an otherworldly existence because God has preserved that tree and placed it in heaven. It grows in heaven And God said, Adam, if you eat of the tree of life, you will live forever. And now he has this tree that's in heaven where he tells everybody, you can eat of this tree and you will live forever. And so we see that tree grows abundantly throughout the New Jerusalem. It it follows the river. It grows on the banks of the river. And the New Jerusalem is lined with all these beautiful trees with leaves that are good and it has delicious fruit. That tree could never live in the ground of a sin-cursed earth, and so God took it away. But in heaven, where everything is perfect, there grows this tree in great abundance, and perfect people are able to eat of that perfect tree. Now, I know there are people who say, well, those are just symbols of other things. We don't look at this as something that's literal. It's just a symbol. But I don't think the language permits it to be a symbol. I think this is real. There is that tree that that grows in heaven. Well, what I want to talk to you about next is the blessing of being able to eat from that tree. What, what What do we get out of this? What do we receive because we can eat of the tree of life? Now, first we see that there is the water of life. Then we see there is this tree of life. And now thirdly, let's talk about the blessing of life. Being able to live in heaven, just the blessing of that. What is that going to be like? Verses 3 and 4, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. There is no better news than you will ever, that you will ever hear than these words. There is no more curse. You can wrap up, roll up, All of the evil, all of the trouble that this world experiences into this one word, curse. That curse came because Adam disobeyed God. Now, he was warned. He was told what would happen. Destruction will follow if you eat of this tree. Death is the result of disobedience. A few days ago, I saw a television program. The story was about a woman whose daughter had died, and she was very angry. And she was speaking to a Catholic priest. And she said to him, where was God? And the priest was trying to comfort her. He told her, well, your your daughter is now in heaven with God. And she said, how does that help me now? Where was God when this happened? Why did she die? And, And what she was doing, she was blaming God for death. When actually everything that we do tends towards death. No one cares to resolve this problem of sin And when death comes, then we want to know, why did God do it? Why did God allow it? But he's already told us that death is the reward of sin. And God said from the very beginning that it would be so. So you find a sinless person and you found the answer to death. 
And you also will see this by looking at your own life, that we are the source of the problem. The blame always falls on us. It doesn't fall on God. And so for every person that is angry at God, you would have to ask yourself this, have I obeyed Him? Have I done what God said? Do I dishonor God by the way that I live? And if we're honest with ourselves, we know the answer to that question. We cause death, and we continue the effects of that sin every day that we draw a breath of life on this earth. And we need to accept that. It took tremendous effort to reverse the effect that sin had on us. Sin caused death to have a powerful grip. And it caused unheard of pain and anguish to get death to release its grip. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He took the punishment of God's wrath for us, a punishment that we deserved. He died and then he arose from the grave to claim the victory over death. And when we trust in him, we are then released from that curse, from the grip that death has on us. Now, I want you to notice three important points about the difference between temporary earthly life and eternal heavenly life. What is the difference in these? Well, first we can say that in this earthly life, we we are the servants of sin. We are always servants of sin. Now, when Adam sinned, the curse was imposed upon him, and sin infected every living creature. And you might think, well, how is that possible? Animals aren't moral creatures. So how does the curse affect them? And yet we find in the book of Romans that Paul says the entire creation, all of the animals are are groaning together, waiting for the lifting of this curse because they are affected by it also. And this is a great teaching from the Word of God that shows us that sin has far-reaching effects. The curse is a horrible thing. It affects all things that ever touched it. And this curse is like a cancer that spreads everywhere. Oh, we're terribly frightened by cancer, aren't we? We know what cancer can do. Have you ever heard of anybody that has stage 5 cancer? Doctors don't talk about anybody having stage 5 cancer because we know what that is. That's death. A person who has stage 5 cancer is dead, so doctors never say that a person is in stage 5 cancer. But this is exactly where we are because of sin. We are in stage 5 of sin, and that is death. Adam sinned, and from his action there flowed an infectious disease. That sin infected all of his children, and so the whole of this creation of men is affected, infected with stage five death. Sin and death. We are the walking dead. Everything that we do has the stench of dead on us. We are enslaved to that death, which makes us the servants of sin. Now, the good news is that when we get to heaven, that curse is gone. We don't have to be slaves of sin any longer. Now, it should be for Christians that we don't live in sin any longer. We've been redeemed by Christ. We have his righteousness that's given to us. And yet what we continue to do as his people, we want to yield to the old sin nature. We want to live out of that sin nature rather than to live out of the new nature that God has given us in Christ. And so we yield to sin when we should have left sin far behind us and and lived in that new creation that we are in Christ. And so a good question for us to ask is, could it be possible that in heaven we would turn to sin again, just like Christians do now? 
Could it be possible to go to heaven and bring that curse of death again? Is it possible that we could ruin the new paradise of God just like Adam did the old? And I think that's an interesting point to consider. What is it that makes the difference, that makes another fall into sin an impossible thing that can happen? Now, we all know that when Adam was created, he was created innocent. There was no sin in him. There wasn't anything in Adam that caused him to disobey God. Same's not true of you and me. We're born with the sin nature. And, and we live in that sin. We're born in it. We wallow in it. Adam is considered to be the federal head of the human race. If you have trouble with that, all it means is this, is that God tried every person in Adam. That Adam stands as a representative of all of us. So God didn't have to put five billion people into the garden to see what they would do. No, if you and I had been placed in the garden at the very beginning, we would have done exactly what Adam did. And so what God did, he tried all of the human race in Adam, and so Adam stands as the representative of us all. So all of humanity is tied to Adam, and now not only do we have potential to sin as Adam did, but now we... we have born, been born with a sin nature that's completely dead to God. Our nature is never disposed towards God. We're never going to turn to Him. We're always against Him. From the day that we take our first breath, we are against Him. Now that sin nature is incapable of operating in the spiritual world. And so what happened to Adam is that his fall was radical. It touched every fiber of his being, every faculty of his being... And that's the same thing that happened to us that are born in sin. We are never disposed to change and do better. And that's why God must initiate new life in us. Now remember, Adam, Adam's not created that way. Adam was innocent. He didn't start out life behind the eight ball like we do. We have a sin nature. Adam did not have it. There's no sin in him. And sin did not arise because of any inward fault. Well, in heaven, you say, isn't that the same? Aren't we returned to the innocent state? And yes, we are. The sin nature is completely destroyed in us, and so there's nothing that would cause us to sin. So then, what is the difference between the original state of Adam, who was created in innocence, and the state of innocence that will be in when we get to heaven? Could we start sin over just like Adam did? So what's going to stop us from sinning without a sinful nature... When Adam sinned without a sinful nature, is it possible to renew the curse? Those are actually very valid and perplexing questions. What is the difference between the Garden of Eden as far as, and heaven as far as man's innocence is concerned? Now, there's a way that I could answer that question. I could say that, well, it is impossible to sin because what God does is he restricts our freedom. God takes our freedom away. He constrains us in such a way that we can't sin. That could be the answer. But then you'd have people that would be upset if I gave that answer because they are so concerned about man's free will. They don't want God to override man's free will. And so they insist that God won't do that at any time. But some of them will accept that as being uh, the earthly position. An earthly position, God does not override the will, but it might be all right in heaven. So here, here's how the argument goes. The argument says, we cannot fully love God unless that love is free. It must be unconstrained. God does not want people to love Him because they are coerced, but He wants them to love Him because they appreciate 
what he's done for them in sending Christ to die for them. That's a good theory, Darwin. A very good theory. And it's the kind of preaching that you hear all of the time. But the problem is, it's false. It's not true. It's a phony theory because that's impossible. Would you ever want to pin your hope on the free human will? When Jesus said this, he said, You will not come to me that you might have what? Life. You won't come to me so that you might have life. Now that sinful nature in you prevents you from coming to Christ that you might have life. And so unless God acts first and gives you a new nature, a different nature, you won't be capable of coming to Him. Man never loves God. Loving God is good. And what does the Bible say? No one does anything that's good. So God has to initiate. God has to start it in its first. Now in heaven, the scenario is different. We don't have a sinful nature. We don't have anything there that prevents us from loving God. We are returned to a state of innocence. And so is our will constrained in a different way than Adam's? A- Adam sinned even though he was created innocent. Now stay with me here. This is where we're going. What is the difference between man in the garden and man in heaven? Well, there are actually two things that are different. First, we are made like Christ. That is, we are impeccable. Understand the word impeccable. It means you cannot sin. We are created anew in Christ so that we have the nature of Christ, which is a nature that cannot sin. As Christ is the perfect Son of God, so we have received Christ's nature, and we also are perfect sons of God, and we cannot sin. Secondly, there is no temptation. Adam was created in innocent, but here's the dif- innocence, but here's the difference in Adam. He was peccant. Peccant means he could sin. And so when he was tempted, he had the ability to sin, and that's what Adam did. He didn't have the nature of Christ. Even though he was innocent, he didn't have the nature of God. Now, God is not, is not peccant as Adam was. God can't sin. Adam could sin, and he chose to sin. So we have two things that are going for us in heaven that Adam didn't have. We have the righteousness of Christ, and we don't have anyone to tempt us to sin. And if there was any temptation, we still would not sin, because we would be just like Christ when he was tempted by Satan. He could not sin, because his nature is holiness, righteousness. There can be no sin in him. And so, this is what we have in heaven That is a nature that is impervious to sin. So everything that we are and everything that goes on in heaven compels us to serve God. Nothing could ever move us away from that desire. We will know Christ perfectly. We will have his perfect mind. And we have no desire to serve sin. And so we're going to serve Christ only and always. And so God never has to override a desire that we have. Because that desire is always towards Christ. That's the blessing of life that we have in heaven. That is absolutely the best life. And you may not understand that right now, but the very best life is to give up self to God to be his servant. That is to be a willing servant of God, to become his slave, to let Christ rule and reign over us because we want no one else to rule and reign over us. And when we get to heaven, our lives will be completely reordered in full surrender to Jesus Christ. 
Now on this earth, because we have the sin nature, we continually struggle with this. And so I still have to preach about sin. Even to save people, I've got to preach about sin. I have to continue to do what preachers have done before me for thousands of years, what the Apostle Paul did and the apostles, other apostles did. They had to preach against sin. And that's because Christians still do it. And so I do what they did. I encourage you not to sin. Now some of you are going to be very happy about this. Heaven has no more preaching about sin. There are no more hell, fire, and damnation sermons in heaven. Now, we need those things now. In heaven, you don't need them. Every sermon that's there is going to be about the love and praise and worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. So in heaven, things change. And we were the servants of sin in the earthly life, but we have a new heavenly life in which we become servants of righteousness. Now, I want you to understand something here that's very important. Heavenly life means that you are servants of righteousness, but the Bible teaches that there is a taste of heavenly life in us right now. There is a taste of heaven in us right now. Romans 6, Paul said, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin... Ye became the servants of righteousness. God says in heaven his servants will serve him. Here Paul says you have been made servants of righteousness. Now why, why did Paul say to us that there is this little taste of heaven in every believer? Paul could explain Paul, and he does. But John also explains Paul. And he says in 1 John 5, And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's what we need to get, and that's what we need to take into our souls, that the reason that there is a taste of heaven in every believer is because we have eternal life right now, eternal life is not a distant hope. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we so often live as if it is? Eternal life is not distant. Eternal life is now. Do you have to die to experience the best life, eternal life? No. Because when you trusted Christ, the Bible says that you were transformed from death to life. And so you have to ask, transformed from death to life, what is that life? And it's as simple and as profound as this, that that life is Christ. That's what life is. It's Christ. It's the same life of John 1, 4 and Revelation 22, verse 1. This body, this body of flesh, is going to be put down. This body is not the real you. This is a sinful body of flesh, but in you is that soul that's been redeemed to God. And the grace of God has touched that soul and has been given eternal life to live with Him. You've been touched with the grace of life. You were born by the Spirit of God. Now, since you have eternal life in you, you should be servants of righteousness, serving Christ out of that newly redeemed soul, rather than being servants of sin that serve out of the corrupt body of sin. Now, when that old body dies, when I mentioned a moment ago, when it dies, it will be raised, 
and it will no longer be a body of sin. It's raised incorruptible and made fit for eternal life in heaven. Now you notice that verse number 3 says, His servants shall serve him. Sounds like a trite statement. His servants shall serve him. That's a very simple statement, but folks, it is actually very profound. We were created to glorify God. And that struggle to turn us back to that original intent is a monumental one. But God intends that we're going to be reestablished in that original purpose. So what will we do when we get to heaven? We will serve Him. Now you need to brace yourself for this. Some of you surely do because you might not like this. With, the, uh, with your lack of church of attendance so many times, I'm sure some of you are not going to like it. But all the activity of heaven can be summed up into one word, that is worship. If you prefer the word service, that's okay. Because every act of service to God is an act of worship. Now I said this is profound because there is a very interesting twist to the word serve here in verse number 3. The word actually has an Old Testament application and it refers to the priests that serve God in the temple. It's a means of service or a type of service that is peculiar to priests, meaning that only they could do it. Only priests can offer this type of service to God. They serve God at the temple. And haven't we learned this? That the New Jerusalem, that all of it is God's temple? And in heaven there's a vast multitude of people that are serving God. And so we ask, how can they do that? How can they serve God in the temple? Only a special people, only a certain class is able to serve God in His temple. And here then is the truth that comes gushing out of this word serve, and that is that all of us have been made priests of the Holy God. That we become a royal priesthood of believers, and we can enter into that temple and serve God because we have been born of the Spirit of the living God. Hebrews says that Christ ushered in a better priesthood. He's a better high priest. And we, being his descendants, make us also priests of the high and holy God. Now, there's another point here to be made as well, and that's the tense of the passage. It says, his servants shall serve him. And the meaning of that is, they will never stop serving him. And so if you want to know what heaven is like for you, sum it up in that word worship. That's what we're going to do in heaven. Always servants of Christ, worshiping him. This is what we read in the fifth chapter, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Oh, you know, it's good that Christians are going to be changed from what we are right now. Otherwise many would be perfectly bored in heaven. J. Vernon McGee wrote, I've always said this facetiously, but it could be true. If he will, I want God to let me teach the Bible in heaven. I want to attend the classes which Paul teaches, and then I would like to teach those people who are members of churches I served on the earth, but who would not attend the midweek Bible studies. I've asked to teach them for one million years, and I tell you, they won't think it's heaven for the first million years. I'm really going to make them work to catch up. 
Whether that will be true or no, I don't know. But I do say we're all going to be busy there. You know, I wish I said that. Many, many times I wish I'd said that very thing. I work hard to present a Sunday morning sermon. It takes a lot of time to do this. You may think it's easy. You stand in front of a pulpit, you just talk to people. Oh, it takes a lot of work to deliver a sermon, to get prepared for it. And I want to tell you this, that I put just as much work into the midweek Bible study. Just as much work goes into that. And there are many of you that are way, way behind in your understanding of Scripture because you don't value the teaching of the Word of God. Now, you may think I'm a very poor teacher, and I'll admit to that. I may be a very poor teacher, but I also know this, that the Word of God does not return to him void. Regardless of the ability of the teacher, God's Word is powerful. And when you hear God's Word, you're going to be better for it, always better for it, because His Word does not return void. God's going to use it, and He'll bless it. Some of you have a lot of catching up to do. You know it. I know it. Others know it. So why don't you do something about it? Now, thirdly, we receive this blessing, and I'll tell you about this one, and then we'll be through. We receive the seal of ownership. Verse number 4. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And they shall see his face. Do you know why that statement stands out? Because it's not or hasn't been always good to see God's face. When Adam sinned, he was cast out of the garden. He lost that face-to-face intimate contact with God. And so seeing God face-to-face is not good now. This is what God said in Exodus. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. John knew that verse. He was very well acquainted with the Old Testament. He knew this verse. He knew what happened when Jesus peeled away a little bit of the flesh and allowed him to see, and Peter and James to see the glory that shone from him. Seeing God was a very important point of emphasis for John. Now in heaven, God allows us to see which was what was once forbidden. We sang the song a moment ago, face to face with Christ my Savior. We'll see him in his glory, and things are going to be changed so that we can. The brilliance of his glory will be good for us then, and there... His servants will have His name in their forehead. So God returns us to this this place where it is so good to be able to see God. And we shall see God when we get into heaven. Now the name that's in the forehead that's mentioned here in verse number 4 is another strong point of emphasis for John because he loved to write about the security that we have in Jesus Christ. He recorded the words of Jesus in the Gospel account. He said, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That is a verse about security. And here in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the name in the forehead, this is the superlative of our security in Christ. Now, we, we see that this is the assurance that we have eternal life. Revelation 3, verse 12 says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down 
out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. I was walking up Taylor Mountain the other day as I often do and there I saw the cows that are on that mountain and each of them has a brand on the hip. That brand is a symbol of ownership. Wherever that cow wanders, everybody knows who that cow belongs to. This is the superlative of our security in Christ. That God put his name on us. God put a stamp on us that is the seal of ownership. And that brand of God is unique. No one else has it but those that belong to him. And that shows that you are a child of God when you have the brand. We say, well, wait a minute. Where, where is it? I can't see it. Ephesians 1, 3, 13 rather, says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Chapter 4, verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now the seal then... The brand is the seal of the Spirit on the Christian right now. Nobody can see that seal. Nobody knows it's there, unless there's something maybe spectacularly different about you. You live differently, you look differently, you talk differently. People can see you're not the same as them. There must be something different, special about you. The seal of ownership says that you belong to God, which means hands off. The devil knows that seal. He can see that seal. He knows which ones are the children of God. Now, he's going he's to pester, you might say, the devil out of you. He'll pester you from now on. But one thing that he can never do, he can never break that seal. He can never take the seal off you and steal you away from God. The Bible says that God never leaves us or forsakes us. Is there a greater feeling that you could have than knowing that you belong to God? What kind of quality of life should that bring you? I belong to the Almighty God. You see all these people out here living in the world around you that know nothing at all about God, and you are a child of God. Isn't that the best life that could be possible, to know that you know Him? Now there is no doubt about salvation. Once you've been saved, there's no reason to doubt, because it's as sure as if you're already in heaven. You can take that to the bank. And that's because you have heaven's brand on you. And you can believe that when Christ comes with his angels, he's going to round you up, round up all the ones that belong to him, and take them home to heaven. Now, oftentimes as we live here, our faith is weak. In heaven, there isn't any such thing as weak faith. And that's because faith is never needed. And you can look into the mirror in your mansion in heaven, and there you will see the brand of Jesus Christ on you. His name written in your forehead. And perhaps you will be able to reach up there and feel that raised brand of the name of the Lord God. Now I want you to notice, though, that there are others that have a brand on them. They have the brand of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13. Now, now don't think this, that when we talk about the Antichrist, that we necessarily talk about somebody's way off far in the distance. Antichrist are now. They're living now. They're all over the place. Read, read John as he talks about the many Antichrists that are in the world even now. Anybody who stands against God is an Antichrist. But this particular Antichrist that comes in the end, there, there's something said here about the brand that he has, where it says, 
He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. I want you to understand this, that Satan also marks his territory. There are people that belong to Satan, and they belong to him right now. You don't wait until... The Antichrist comes to get this mark because Satan has a mark on his people right now. Now, you you can't see these brands. God sees them, and he knows if you have another brand on you. Now, the big difference is where you go depends on which brand that you have, whose name is written on you. Revelation 19.20 says, The beast was taken... And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So everyone, regardless of who you are, you have a name that's written on you. Some are guaranteed eternal life. And that's because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Others, the Bible says, will not see life because their names are not in that book. And so you might ask, well, if I can't see the name that's written on me, then how can I know if I'm in the scene of Revelation 22, verse 1, or am I in the scene of Revelation 20, verse 15, where it says, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I can't see the brand. So how do I know this? How can you tell? Do you have to wait until you die in order to find out? Oh, actually, you know right now. You can tell this right now. In fact, if you don't know it before you die, then you won't get anything but bad news when you do. Because your name is not in God's book, and you don't have God's brand on you. Well, I would hope that you would ask next, how can I find this out? How do I know which brand, which name is written on me? And I'll tell you, all you need to do is just walk out the auditorium today. Walk through those doors right over here and look behind you as you walk out, and this is what you'll read. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Some have Zoe, some do not have Zoe. And the way that you know is by checking your belief in Christ. Now, I began by speaking of life. In heaven there is eternal life. But you need to know this, that eternal life does not begin in heaven. Eternal life begins now. Eternal life happens now. And it happens because of belief in Jesus Christ. So, the Bible's teaching us, you must believe now. You must now. There is no time to do this later. Because if you wait, you'll never see the river of life. You'll never see the tree of life. You'll never see any blessings that are in heaven. You must know Jesus Christ now. So you trust him. And actually now, you take a drink of the water of life. You trust him now. And you have eaten of the tree of life. You trust him now. You never thirst and hunger again. You must believe in Christ in order to have this life. To live forever, you must know him now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you thinking about this great passage before us, life in heaven. 
What a tremendous blessing that it is to know that there is eternal life. And we have it now by trusting in you. So we have no need to worry about this. We don't have to worry about the day that we physically die. Because once we've trusted you, our soul is safe and secure. We have that life already in us. And because that life is there, we continue to live. Though our body goes into the ground, we continue to live because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That is promised to us. It's a hope that can never fade away because you said you'll never leave us or forsake us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to someone's heart today. Help them to know now that you have chosen them in eternity past, and they know it only by one way, and that is to trust you as Lord and Savior. We thank you for the truth of your word. Bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On holiday weekends, such as we have this week, our attendance is usually made up by people that are members of the church, saved people if not members of the church, and uh, they recognize the importance of being in the church at, at all times, and holidays are no different than any other, and so we don't take a day off because there's a holiday. So I, I may be telling you things that uh, you already know as far as your eternal life is concerned. I mean, you, you do believe that you're saved and you have eternal life now. But the other question still looms for all of us, and that is, are we living as if we have eternal life now? Uh, do, we, do we obey the Lord? Uh, are we living out of the old sinful nature, or are we living out of the new man that's created in Jesus Christ? It's a question that all of us need to answer, and we need to be very concerned about that. Uh, do we live as if eternal life is in us? And one of the things the Bible says to do, that although you say that you're saved, and you claim to be a Christian, and you come to church, but you might not actually have eternal life in you because you're just going through motions. You're still doing outside things. I mean, you're just, just, just acting this thing out. No, you have to know this in your heart. You have to have that genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or neither shall you see God. There are so many people, as Jesus said in in, uh, in Matthew, uh, so many, that in Matthew 7, he says that, say, well, haven't I done many wonderful works for you? Haven't I done all these great things for you? And Jesus says, I never knew you. And that's because you did all the things, but your heart wasn't right. You went to church, maybe even read your Bible, maybe you said a prayer every now and then, but your heart wasn't right with God. That has to be found out. And one of the things that that you can tell whether you, you really are saved. I mean, the Bible gives us these evidences. And, and one of them is, do you obey God? Are, are you a part of his church? You're a Christian. Are you a part of his church? you actively take a place in his church? Are you a pew sitter? Or are you somebody who does? Are you somebody who works? That, that often tells the difference between whether you truly know God. So... We're, we're encouraged to search our hearts to find out these things. Do I truly know him? So if you say that you're saved, you, you've heard the message, you, you, it's old hat to you, examine your heart. Do you really know him? Are you a serving Christian? And that's one of the ways that you determine that I really do have him deep down in my heart. Um, God convicts you in some way about that. You need to work with God on that now. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronard Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.